Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Some said never, but they never done come. Yeah, and took our trust. It's been winning, but the lovers ain't done. Yeah, not on my watch. Yeah, if yeah. Took all my rights away. Yeah, if yeah. Telling me how to pray. Yeah, if yeah. Won't let us demonstrate. Yeah, wrong. Yeah, if yeah. Thinking I don't belong. Yeah, if yeah. Hiding behind a gun. Yeah, if yeah. Hoping we're gonna run. Well, it sounds like a nice song. The problem is that that it is part of a commercial that almost uh, ended American civilization this week. Uh, it was very close. It was nip and tuck. Uh, somehow or other, we're all still here. But we're going to tell you about that and uh, uh, try to pull that apart a little bit. And when I say we, it's time for the nose. We're here in uh, lovely New Haven, where we also have wonderful adventures. And where it's the last day of Restaurant Week, if you feel motivated. Uh, joining us are a bunch of uh, New Haven guests. Uh, Pedro Soto is the Chief Operating Officer at Spacecraft Manufacturing in New Haven. Uh, Benny Klein is a psychotherapist and author and a radio host on uh, WPKN. In fact, uh, Pedro is the only uh, person on the panel who does not have his own radio show. We're working on that right now. <laughs> yet. Um, yes, yet. Uh, and then Lucy Gelman is a reporter for the New Haven Independent and the host of the WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink, SYN. And C, and who, in just an uh, episode of Oceanic Psychic Pain for me, I've discovered is more popular than I am in New Haven. So um, <laughs> that was on Monday night. It's, it's not over. I don't know what to say about that. But we actually both hosted the wonderful Book Plates thing, uh, uh, which is a fundraiser for the Institute Library on Monday night. It turned out more people wanted to go to Lucy's part of the event than me, and I just was very... I, I can test trouble. this fact, you Colin. Can, you can test this? I do. Okay. Oh, you can test it. Okay. I can test it. Um, anyway, uh, that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about this horrible commercial. We'll also talk about the death uh, of Don Rickles, uh, Barry Manilow, coming out. But first, we're not just going to talk about this horrible commercial, but about um, a whole series of possible miscalculations or ways in which brands get out of step or, as they say on WNHH Radio, out of sync with uh, their uh, audiences, with their potential client bases, or or just with, like, folks in general. But to begin with, we have to talk about this Pepsi commercial. I'm, I'm really kind of hard-pressed to describe it, but I will try anyway, and then you guys can tell me what I left out. So um, we see marchers. Uh, they're kind of like gen- – Sort of generic mar- marchers, um, <laughs> although as Stephen Colbert observed, they're all hot. They're, he goes, it was a, a demonstration by America's hot extras. Um, <laughs> they're carrying peace signs. They're carrying some join the conversation signs. They're carrying, it's unclear. Uh, the song that you heard opening the show today is playing uh, throughout. Uh, there is um, a cute guy who is practicing the cello, and uh, he packs up his cello and gets into the marching. There is a um, Muslim uh, photographer, I think she is. She's got a hijab. Um, But most importantly, there's Kendall Jenner, who's there having a big fashion shoot, like she's in the neighborhood, I guess, having a big fashion shoot. And as these people are marching by, she, um, she is moved, and she's moved to, among other things, throw off her blonde wig 
and actually kind of toss it in a very peremptory way to a not entirely happy African-American aide, I guess, somebody who's like one of her people, uh, and join the march. It's unclear whether she's moved so much by the sentiments of the marchers or the cute cello guy. I can't really tell which. Uh, and then the whole thing kind of ends with like police barricades and uh, Kendall striding through the ranks of the protesters to hand one of the policemen a Pepsi, at which point this entire tense situation, which was probably going to erupt in a terrible uh, episode of American violence, American carnage, is diffused. Uh, and everybody steps down and is kind of calm. I don't know. How did I do? Did I leave anything out? Uh, you did beautifully. Yeah. And I think, you know, as you mentioned, Colbert, as he called it, um, attractive lives matter. It's <laughs> <Yes. laughs> kind of what he called it. You know, the thing that I was so excited to come in and talk about this commercial today because it has something for everyone <laughs> to despise <laughs> of every generation. For example, when I saw it, the peace signs that are littered throughout the marchers, uh, they're holding placards. I flashed to the 60s. So mm -hmm. I was outraged on that behalf that this was a um, a shallow and trivialization of the 60s anti-war movement and all like that. And then it has something for the Black Lives Matter issue. Um, when Kendall brings the can to the uh, very attractive yeah. cop who doesn't look very threatening, it's a kind of ripping off of a couple of iconic photographs, right? Mm. So one of them is um, Aisha Evans from Baton Rouge, Louisiana in July, after that altercation, who stands very proudly in front of some armed guards. But others go back to the 60s, when you had like flower children approaching armed guards and attempting to put flowers in their rifles. There's another one with a, a person offering a flower, uh, armed rifle Berlin Wall, which was another Pepsi appropriation that I didn't have time to research. But there is something for everyone. <laughs> and um, when she is suddenly enlightened, and rubs off her lipstick. Mm -hmm. To me, that was almost the worst moment. And the brown hair cascades mm -hmm. down. Yes. <laughs> As if, you know this whole thing in the Kardashian world, if I can call it that, <laughs> and in the world of Project Runway, and so that, that women should be fierce, which seems to mean wearing stilettos and, yeah. you know, striding across the stage, singing and doing vibratos. So that, that motion of the rubbing the lips is if like you, she's so just, fierce. For people who have not seen this commercial, and I might add, this commercial has never aired on American television right. and never will. <laughs> you know, it has created this incredible furor without actually getting onto television. Um, but, yes, there is a moment where with the back of her hand, with her wrist almost, she uh, rubs off her lipstick, I think in a motion that says, I come as a friend, not as a sex object or something. I, I don't know what that's all about, but I, maybe you do because it upset you. But Pedro, I want to ask a question, and I, I'm asking you because I'm pretty sure you actually have an answer to it. <laughs> but, you know, as I look at this, I think, well, I've seen commercials kind of this stupid. Like, most commercials are kind of this stupid. I've seen commercials that attempted to appropriate social themes uh, or to attach themselves to movements. Uh, I'm familiar with the United Colors of Benetton. Uh, I've seen co I, we were, everybody was talking about, you know, I like to teach the world to sing, various kinds of commercials. So what tripwire does this one kick? What, what bridge too far does it go? I mean, I think that, and you're right, and, and like the Super Bowl was filled this year with ads 
that kind of went down this road. Mm. Um, I think, well, actually, as we were saying in our kind of pre-show conversation, um, I think the the thing that this trips is is really the ending, the way that as it, as it goes, you end up at these cops at a barricade, and obviously, when cops are involved in watching a protest, that's when things escalate and things get bad. In the last several years, that's exactly what's happened. And then what happens is she walks up and and sort of diffuses it, and it and it's like ah, but so that explains it ah. But for Pepsi, you know, we would have maybe avoided the violence of the last four years or forty years. And I think that that's really where it goes off the rails. And the fact that it's cops, um, the fact that uh, there is the photographer taking a picture it is meant to be the photograph moment that uh, you were you were referencing mm-hmm. and i think that that's really where things go off the rails and i think that had it been anything but approaching um armed police um or police i don't even know if, if you see their guns or not uh it would have played entirely differently i, I mean lucy i think ultimately maybe we can come up with some commandments uh, that, uh, you know, for future, thou shalt not use a Kardashian as a symbol of enlightenment. Maybe there's like things like that. But, you know, the commercial is trying really hard to, in fact, ingratiate itself with exactly the group of people who seem to be the most angered by it. So it's, it, it's uh, you know, as affirmatively multiracial as Tiger Woodsian as it possibly could be, you know, I mean, the person who takes the iconic picture is the woman in the Muslim hijab, uh, you know, the cello playing guy seems to be non-specifically Asian, maybe in some way. And like everybody, it really is the United T- Colors of Benetton. They they really are trying to um, line themselves up with a very inclusive kinds of kind of message. So, so why are they in so much trouble? <laughs> well, I, you know, Colin, I would, push back a little bit i I would say is it really Mm. because i i think sure you have a much more diverse crowd than you might see in some other commercial some of which we might talk about in a minute but um but the the flip side is it's like beautiful it's these beautiful people on parade i didn't see anyone who was larger than like a size two Mm. um you know, no one who was short, no one who had dwarfism, no one who was in a wheelchair. I could be wrong about that. Um, and and um, just no one who looked like they like they were protesting much more beautifully than I've ever seen anyone protest. Right. And so it, it was kind of this really sexy commercial. And I think um, that doesn't do it any favors. It's it's kind of not doing itself any favors in that way. And, you know, and I think you have not only Kendall Jenner as a, a sex object throughout, you know, when she starts, she's posing as this model with this blonde wig. And when she throws it off, it's very sexy. And it's mm-hmm. supposed to be great and beneath the, you know, the lipstick wiping and like, I'm a pleb now. Um, and, and yet, um, for the whole thing, you just have these beautiful people on parade, including the police. Like, yeah. so... <laughs> so, yeah. so that's one of the ways. So that's maybe one of the commandments: "Thou shalt not suggest that attractive people hold the key to world peace," uh, or something like but that. But I think also, like, like protest. We have not seen protests being sexy, and I think it's very, very dangerous if you um, sort of make that conflation in in any way, shape, or form. Benny, I can see you. Well, uh, oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. On the other hand, (laughs) of my other hand, of my hands, um, so, you know, soda sales, I read, have dropped uh, the last 11 years. And Coke, I think, is really trying to appeal to millennials. 
So I've read some things, I'm not saying I agree, that are sort of more sympathetic to them as an industry trying desperately to stay current and all like that. So, and I think also they can't appeal to the old because we've all gotten diabetes already from drinking all the soft drinks. Um, so I, I think that um, they're trying to stay current and they're trying desperately. They've always been number two to Coke. I think I said Coke a minute ago, Pepsi. Um, so, um, but are we saying that people shouldn't be this beautiful and this sexy? Like, for example, I can think back to some ads that were pulled, okay, just like this ad was pulled. You're not going to see it. I don't know if you remember, but back in, um, I don't remember when this was, like maybe 10 years ago, Calvin Klein had a series of ads and I went and looked at them, and I was absolutely appalled. When you talk about this idea of linking the sexiness, which I mm. do think can be a horrible problem, you want to be shocked? It was like kiddie porn. It was a sequence of prepubescent teenagers, uh, like mostly guys with shirts off, the photographer's off screen, and he's saying things like, yeah, like that. Yeah, sit down like that. Hey, do you like your body? What do you like about it? It was so pornographic that it was objected to and then pulled. So that was like beautiful bodies being objectified in the service of selling Calvin Klein underwear. Hardee's had to revamp their ads. You know about that one? where they had had scantily clad women in all of their ads for their fast food places, and they pulled it because of objections, and they claimed that now they were becoming a wholesome company and changing their tune. Well, so this I, isn't the first time. I, but I do think one thing that's happening now, you know, is that, um, and I'm not def actually defending this out. I thought it was really stupid, but um, but I'm I'm drawing you out here. But um, <laughs> but I think another thing that's happening, like in the past, like even in the five years ago. Um, Pepsi probably would have gotten this thing on the air, assuming it was intended for air. It's really long. It's too long to be a commercial. Maybe it's there's very a, long. Maybe there might be a, it's like a, a mini movie. Yeah, yeah. It could be probably <laughs> a, a cut down for air version of it that exists somewhere. Uh, they would have got this thing on the air. And then, you know, over the course of a few weeks, probably, they would be collecting reactions to it and going, yeah, some people really think this is really dumb. They don't like it, you know. And then um, some people maybe would be buying more Pepsis or whatever. You know, I mean, this whole thing would have played out in a certain way. Um, and now, I mean, Pedro, the cycle's so short right now. I mean, people start objecting. Uh, social media ramps up really fast. There's hashtags uh, that get started. Pepsi lives matter, uh, <laughs> and, and like you know, uh, I, and and so and they have to make this split second decision too. And to me, maybe that's the thing that's different. It, anyway, yeah, yeah take it. I think. I mean, the amazing thing is that this was over in about 22 hours. Yeah. So, I mean, by the, by the time I think I'd watched the ad, I actually had to look for it because it had exactly. already been pulled. Yes. But, um, but in some ways – oh, I'm sorry, Pedro. Oh, go ahead. Um, in some ways, you know, that makes it a very successful marketing campaign. That's that, true, although given the insanely high production values, I don't think the intent was like a 22-hour shelf no, life. No, no. But, but, but I also, you know, kind of wonder this – is, this is different than the hashtag delete Uber or hashtag you know, right. that we saw probably a month ago. Yeah, I don't think this is going to, like, cause people to boycott Pepsi. No. But I think it's, it is something that people were – it's almost like the – People were just so shocked, just amazed. It's like, what were you thinking? I think it was, and, and I think also the 
it being more open to ridicule. And I think the fact that like, if Saturday Night Live doesn't have something new episode this weekend, if this isn't there, I, I will be amazed. <laughs> like I'm waiting to see on mm. Sunday morning yeah. I won't watch it live. <laughs> I'll be asleep. What, uh, you know, what's going to be. And, 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 and that's the thing I think that probably Pepsi was reacting to. It's like, very quickly, you know, people were were inserting Pepsi into "I Have a Dream" speech. You know, people were putting Pepsi all over, it. and so all of a sudden, it became such a fast mockery that that's probably the reason why the shelf life was so short. Is that it was being turned around on itself rather than people being really. It's like we're just non-specifically mad, and we're going to have a deep conversation on this. Mm. It became a punchline so fast, and I think that's why it evaporated. I mean, I think you're both onto something. Very interesting, too. I mean, on the one hand, yeah. I don't know. What was the budget for this thing, do you suppose? <laughs> it looks like it costs like, you know, $40 million to shoot or something, uh, and, and if it's never going to run. On the other hand, you know, as Benny was suggesting before, Pepsi's in a very different business than a lot of other brands. They're basically, even though soda drinking in general is going down, it's you're not going to use a commercial like this to get people to drink more soda, I don't think. They're mostly in the business of trying to eclipse or edge up or edge across and into Coke's territory. And and so a world in which people are saying Pepsi, 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 uh, which Saturday Night Live used to say all the time, no Coke, Pepsi, or no, I can't remember which, what they said. in the, But anyway, the world in which people are saying Pepsi a lot, that may not be a bad world for them. I mean, I, you may be right that this may be a successful marketing campaign in the end. Well, Colin, you, you, are you sort of saying that, and I think it's really true that marketing and advertising is always the equating of, say, sex and a better life, and getting the things that you want. Like it, it instills desire. Yeah, I don't know if I'm saying that. I mean, that certainly was always the case. Don Draper can tell you that. No, I was like, <laughs> Lucy, I, I was going to more to Lucy's point. I think we don't know in this new age of hashtag driven media storms what the net effect of something like this is, right? Like, is it because, in fact, Pepsi, Pepsi, hashtag Pepsi is so dumb, you know, maybe it's bad, but ordinarily just to get people to say your brand name over and over again is at least potentially a good thing. I don't know what... Yeah, no, uh, I I, th I think we still don't know. I'm, I mean, Benny, um, one thing that's so interesting to me, going back to this idea of, you know, Don Draper, so of course we talked about how you can't see this, uh, if you saw Mad Men, you can't see this Pepsi ad without also thinking of the finale of Mad Men and, and kind of the, the Coke commercial that so ties together all of the seasons. But um, this is like the antithesis of the carousel episode of Mad Men. You know, if, if you're thinking about that, you want to sell something simply, you want to appeal to emotions. And I don't think this did. And so I'll be interested to see, I, I don't watch a lot of commercials. Um, but I know that they come on before, you know, YouTube videos and during Netflix videos and um, when you're streaming stuff. And, and so I'm interested to see, you know, going forward, what storyboards look like, because Colin, I think you're right, we're in this um, weird kind of media advertising moment where people are figuring things out. Well, right. Lucy's yeah, alluding to something that I don't know how to articulate, maybe you can help me. But there's something else about this ad that bothers me. Um, there's something surreal about it due to the times we're in. Mm -hmm. When I see these kinds of ads, and I think there have been others where there is this like United Colors of Benetton and um, Muslim women with headscarves and everybody's together. And that feels very good on the one hand, right? We had the Women's March. We have this rise, this fantastic rise in activism, and it makes you feel sort of chills and the music's right. And then you wake up the next day, like you said in the hall, Pedro, and 
there's number 45 and all of that <laughs> surreality. So I sort of feel like it's part of a, a slightly psychotic advertising experience. <laughs> well, and, well, and maybe that's why it's tone deaf. Let me go back to uh, here's what Pepsi said after they got in trouble. They said Pepsi, this is their statement, Pepsi was trying to project a global message of unity, peace, and understanding. Clearly, we missed the mark and we apologize. We did not intend to make life light of any serious issue. We are uh, removing the content and halting any further rollout. We also apologize for putting Kendall Jenner in this position. Poor girl. I, I, I think that, that last line was unnecessary. I really haven't really arrived at a moment where you have to apologize to Kardashians for anything. Um, they haven't even begun apologizing to us. So, you know. um, But, you know, Pedro, to me, maybe here's where the problem is, which is – you know, they say, well, we were trying to project a global message of unity, peace, and understanding. Well, were you doing that or were you acknowledging that there's a movement for unity, peace, and understanding and then trying to tie yourself to it? I think yeah, that's what they're yeah. in there trouble you go. Yeah, I think you that go. was exactly yeah. it. I think they saw everything that's happened over the last year and the last uh, you know, several months exactly and, and, and said, how do we co-opt that? Right? How do we join this? And this was their – their shot. And so this is an interesting commercial to discuss. I just want to say that we've got a few other things that we want to get, to get to in this segment. And and so one of the reactions is, what were they thinking? Well, I kind of know what they were thinking. They were thinking that. They were thinking, you know what? Right. This is going to look great, and it's got Kendall Jenner in it. And it's, you know, uh, I don't know what Nivea was thinking. <laughs> uh, oh, Niv oh yeah. dear. So the skincare brand Nivea set off a controversy this week with an ad featuring the phrase, white is purity. Uh, again, finding itself accused of racial insensitivity <laughs> over a campaign that seemed to be embraced by white su uh, supremacists. Uh, this last latest ad, which showed a woman with dark hair cascading down her back and wearing white in a brightly lit room, promoted its invisible for black and white deodorant, um, et cetera. And so, so Lucy here... <laughs> <laughs> is it because I use deodorant, or or is this no no a single day? I just no no. I just feel like like they didn't do a focus group, or I mean, I just there like, is I don't know. no redeemable <laughs> thing about this. Yeah. There, it, it, like like it is just you know completely flat footed, completely tone deaf. Yeah yeah. I I mean I don't think that that anyone really thought this through. I I think there's there's certain stuff. So um so I won't say where this was, but um a a friend of mine told a story. She's on the board of a certain museum and uh and the museum was going through outreach efforts and uh the director said, "I have a great idea and let's call this drinking and driving." And uh and it was like <laughs> it it was like a night where you did bar hopping or something like that and then there was an exhibition about cars. Um but of course, that's kind of the same thing. I mean, did anyone think about sort of the the political and social landscape that we've had, you know, over American history, but specifically over probably the past year and a half? Um, and and actually approach this critically at all? And I think the answer is no. Well, and, and, and Biddy, that gets to a point that you were making before, which is it's sometimes it's hard to know where in the pipeline these things are when other things happen uh, out in real life. I mean, for example, I've been watching um, Homeland, this, uh, year's, uh, this season of Homeland, which clearly anticipated a Hillary Clinton victory. The entire plot line of this is based on somebody a lot like Hillary Clinton being president. And it kind of doesn't make any sense in light of what we actually know to be the case. And, you know, whether it's the, the the dumb Pepsi commercial or or this, it just it seems as though 
you know, their reaction time has to be at least fast enough to go, oh, this is probably the wrong time to say white is purity. Not that there's a really great time to, <laughs> to say that, but I mean, we, once again, we sort of know what that means. You know, it, it has, you know, I mean, the no, pure is the driven snow and there are all kinds of associations between uh, white and virginity and brides and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, as you're saying right now, why say that? Well, why, but my goodness, I mean, any intro course to consciousness raising <laughs> about race, gender, sexual orientation, white is purity. I mean, that's probably one of the first things that might be written on the board and said, you know, you got to be careful about this kind of thing. And the other amazing thing is the biggest demographic of Nivea users is young African-American women. Hmm. Hmm. Um, well, Nivea has also refused, has now removed the ad um, and stopped the entire campaign. And it's another example of how sensitive. And did they apologize to Kendall? Or? I know they did not. <laughs> there was no Kardashian involvement that I'm aware of. Um, so, Pedro, this is the last one of these that we have time for, anyway, is one that you brought up. I'm the only person in the room who did not know what mod cloth was, um, but uh, but I know now. Uh, and so mod cloth, which was kind of an independent fashion company, I think kind of Bay Area-based initially and had this kind of nice – well, yeah, maybe you guys should be explaining what mod cloth, mod cloth yeah. is. Anyway. Yeah, and actually, Lucy might want to explain it more. Oh, I I'm, uh, uh, I mean, all I know is um, it was formed in a in a guy's college dorm room mm -hmm. in, uh, I think, between 2010 and 2014 in Pittsburgh, actually. And, and so the move to the Bay Area is more recent. And um, it had – sort of feminist roots it made a lot of clothes for plus size women which can be really hard to come by and um and there were a number of brands that sell fair trade clothing um some of which give sort of kickbacks to uh women in third world countries who produce fabrics and and patterns and and that's that's where where i am pedro yes and then this this uh you know very popular brand uh <laughs> with young progressive people ends up getting purchased by walmart this week so uh yeah and i think that it, the interesting thing on this is is just how it, it, the uh, on my I, i'm not a walmart well, walmart well walmart or mod cloth customer so uh but my, my facebook feed simply erupted with anguish uh with people that just didn't know what they were going to do uh you know there was someone uh on one of the comments who was like oh my god i've never bought anything at Walmart, I just ordered something from ModCloth yesterday, you know, making, realizing that, that they ordered, you know, something from Walmart, you know, like, and again, I think there's, it's another topic for another day, uh, this conflating with Walmart and, you know, never being able to shop there. Some people have, have no choice uh, in most of this country, uh, but to, to, to do that. But, um, you know, it is an interesting thing where this, uh, what hap what so what, what, what happens with this going forward, um, no, knowing that uh, this, this type of consumer is very put off by, something like Walmart uh, eating their brands. Right. Although, you know, first of all, we should say they were actually sold to Jet.com, which mm -hmm. is owned by Walmart. And, and Benny, like, like why, why is, you know, Walmart, why is Walmart Mordor? Well, mm -hmm. I mean, there are a bunch of different reasons. But one of them is this kind of notion that they have eaten up the landscape mm -hmm. of American commerce, that, you know, small, idiosyncratic, locally owned stores have been gobbled away. Well, so has all on online commerce in general. E-commerce mm -hmm. in general has done the same thing. Amazon has done the same thing. And in many respects, what Walmart seems to be doing, acquiring companies like this, is saying, we'd like to get in that kind of e-commerce thing where you have this really close relationship with your customer 
customers and they talk back and forth to you a lot on online forums. We want to be more like that. But, I mean, that's its own kind of problem. Yeah, I see what you mean. But there's something else more specific to Walmart that makes it egregious is that their policies of gender discrimination are notorious, uh, particularly around issues of maternity leave and things like that. So it, it really seems to be peculiar. I guess part of it also was the company was not necessarily doing all that well financially. Uh, and this is, you know, this is part of the American dream. I mean, look, Honest Tea started partly here in New Haven, Barry Nailbuff at Yale uh, and his partner. And they, you know, it's this wonderful product that I like to drink and it has good things in it and it's Honest Tea and it has this kind of hippie new age vibe. And But then success is you sell the brand to Coca-Cola and you get a lot of money. I mean, I, I, I don't know how you can tell people they can't do that anyway. Can I, mean, I just share a yeah. fan? to see that yeah uh when you said at the beginning you were the only one that didn't know about mod cloth yeah i didn't know about mud cloth okay. but i will tell you that i read it in our collective email as mud cloth <laughs> and i had a whole fantasy that people were going out to african countries and coming back with mud cloth and and african made clothing designs and selling them at walmart <laughs> and that's what i thought we were going to talk about all right uh, no, people um, at the demonstration with Kendall Jenner were wearing mud cloth. It's a different <laughs> thing. Um, all right. We do have to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk. keep it straight. We're going to talk about, well, two really old guys, I guess. <laughs> so I'll be right at home. The rest of these people, they won't even know. Massive hands are tiny feet. Life hands you lemons, then sell lemonade. It's the choice we made. So I'm going to sell soda pop. I'm gonna 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 sell soda pop. i Almost nothing to both of two of two of our three guests here uh, on the panel today. Just sort of age-wise, that's the way that it works out. Uh, we have with us today Benny Klein, uh, Pedro Soto, and uh, Lucy Gelman here on the nose today. Um, I'll start. I, I don't think that this one necessarily has to be a long conversation, but. Um, there's something sad about this. So uh, Barry Manilow, who I believe is 73 years old now, uh, and whose sexuality I think has not been a secret since about 2015, um, gave an interview where he said that he basically had concealed the fact that he was gay. He didn't come out for decades. He's been in a 39-year monogamous relationship um, with a man um, because he thought it would disappoint fans if he if they knew I was gay. And so actually, Benny, I will start with you because we're a little bit generationally closer to these two youngins over here. <laughs> Um, I mean, I first of all, uh, it's probably a mistake to think that all of the battles about this have been won and that the peace reigns in the land anyway. But, you know, it, it is kind of interesting that for a certain group of people, a large group of Americans, this was kind of the guy who set the metro, metronome for uh, rom heterosexual romantic music. You know, I mean, just, a, you know, he may not have been your taste or my taste, but weekend in new england you know was like just you know a lot of these songs were these just huge touchstones for people about heterosexual romance but i'm not really sure anybody would have cared even back then if they but but maybe i'm am i sugarcoating the old days i don't know the old days what comes to my mind is only one thing one or two about barry manilow um for a brief period in my 20s during a moratorium of not knowing what i was going to do with my life i worked in an office i remember a couple of the women there were 
ardent Barry Manilow fans. Mm. And I really wasn't. It wasn't my kind of thing. I like edgier music, whatever. And I felt sort of snobby about them, which I feel bad about in retrospect. But they were in love with him, like you said. I mm. mean, it was he was a heterosexual icon that inspired a lot of longing and projection for mm. these women. So um, I don't know what to make of that. I didn't share that. When he came out recently, of course, there is that kind of sadness of like, wow, you were closeted for so long. You know, and there are, of course, many people who have such different experiences of being gay, lesbian, or bisexual now than younger people today. Um, but I guess I wonder if it's one of those things where everybody knew. Or, and, and do you know, do you think yeah. like, 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 see, everybody in the who was in the know or in the showbiz world, you know, with some characters, right. everybody knows. Well, I mean, which see, that brings up... And I don't know if it matters. Right. I don't think... Well, I I don't think... Well, I don't know. Who knows? Who knows what what, what people would have thought 25 years ago or, or more uh, about this. But uh, what I'm reminded of by this whole story, Pedro, is the degree to which, in fact, probably an awful lot of people in show business, business to this day, at a time where other people in other fields are more comfortable coming out, are thinking, you know, the minute I do this, it is going to define the kind of work that I get. So as we know, for example, Zach Quinto, who plays Mr. Spock, is very gay and very out and very clear about that, you know, and, and Ian McKellen is too. And, uh, you know, but... I'm sure there there are, you know, dozens and dozens and scores and scores of people in show businesses who think, you know, I, I will absolutely get put in some kind of box if I do this. Yeah, and I think that the, the, the flip side as well is that I will be now sort of a, a spokesperson uh, for, for being mm -hmm. gay. And I think that um, that's another sort of position where, uh, you know, Barry Manilow may not have wanted to have been because I, I think going going back to Mary, Barry Manilow, I think that a lot of it, um, sort of from my position when he's saying, you know, I didn't, I felt bad. I didn't want to disappoint my fans. I mean, like, as Benny mentions, if you're, if he's there performing and just people and all of these songs, you know, have, people have invested their lives into it. And I think to some degree, it was like, I'm, I'm selling this, this thing, you know, this, this, this particular way of American life, and I'm about to shatter it. Um, and I don't want to do that. And so he remained closeted. And I think part of it was, was sort of that side of, of the equation. Um, but I think that it is really sad that, that he felt the need to have to protect that, 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 that conversation couldn't happen where, um, he, you know, he said, you know, and like all love is great and kind of try to transcend that moment. I think he felt locked into sort of the brand that had been created over the years. Did you want to... Uh... No, I, 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 I mean, I, I think Benny and, and Pedro hit the nail on the head. It made me um, very, very sad. The, the comment, I was afraid I would disappoint my fans, made me very, mm -hmm. very sad. But I think we still see that. We saw that with Ellen Page a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. who said, I've known for a very long time that I was gay. And of course, yes, she's younger. Yes, she's now become a very prominent spokesperson for Glisten. Um, but we're still seeing that. And, and so I, I think... Um, it, yeah, it it's sad. I'm really happy he's out now, and um, yeah, that's... I felt very sad for his partner. Yes. Yeah, 
Um, all right, we're going to move on. Uh, Don Rickles uh, has What a died. segue. Yeah, what a segue. <laughs> uh, from Mr. Sensitivity to Mr. Not-So-Sensitive. Um, Don Rickles has died, of course, uh, America's most legendary insult comic. Um, some of you who are listening to the show uh, live at 1 o'clock uh, may have heard, go, heading into our show, um, a couple of different interviews that he gave to Fresh Air, one to Terry Gross and the other one to David Bianculli, I think, um, where he talked a little bit uh, about why he did what he did and how he did what he did. Um, but this is a guy who, you know, it's, it, there's so many ways that you can see Don Rickles. And in some ways, he is kind of one of the last members of the rear guard of a particular kind of show business that sort of doesn't exist anymore and then sort of does. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I, I, when, when we open up this box, like all kinds of things get found in it, right? Like, Pedro, shock comedy has not gone away. Right. Insult comedy has <laughs> not gone away. You know, we can all dig up the names right now of people who are working in that area. Uh, and probably also, it's too bad we don't have Sean Murray here, but if you go to mm-hmm. a comedy club, you know, and watch some lesser known comics, they're probably going to be working off some of the same tropes, but maybe just saying it a little bit differently. That's true. And I think it, it was interesting because I've never listened to uh, Don, Don Rickles' um, sort of sets back from the day. And, mm-hmm. you know, they would be shocking even today, um, if not to some degree more so, because I think there is a veneer that he sort of ripped away, which we've kind of reapplied, I think. Um, and and um, But I think also um, the the Terry Gross interview, and I, I wish we had the, the clip that, that, that was played about um, where he, he did, you know, wraps up one of his shows, you know, and he takes a very serious moment about kind of why he's doing what he's doing. And he's sort of saying that, you know, we're all we're all kind of part of the same tribe, uh, you know, and I may be making fun of you, but I only make fun of um, big people. And you're all big people here in this audience. And he and I, this thing about how we, when he was in the Navy. Yeah. And he said, yes, it, and it the, didn't yeah. matter. You know, mm-hmm. we didn't matter what you were, what color you were, what religion you were. You know, we were all just standing on the ship, just, you know, hoping we could get through this together. Um, but that comes at the end. I mean, it, it, I thought, first of all, I was very moved by that statement, too. But, you know, we shouldn't whitewash this either. No. <laughs> and so that comes we, – we're going to play a little clip of – so this is, this is what Don Rickles sounds like. I'm, I should say, th- I, I am going to give a trigger warning out here. This is Don Rickles from the album Hello, Dummy. It came out in the 1960s. He – you know, would do this is a rapid fire uh, set that he did. I think it, it was his kind of Vegas thing at the time, although he didn't really work with a script or jokes or anything like that. But so he's, you'll hear, you know, what I think we would write today, rightly call today, a racist joke here. That's right, I make fun of my own people. We're the chosen people. That's right. But what does it mean? We're human beings Jew, Gentile, Irish, Negro, Puerto Rican. Ah, Puerto Rican, that's trouble. Where does it say you have volleyball game while Jew is working? Just pump the organ and hope the Mormons get to Utah. It's all part of it, gang. Laugh at bigotry, that's what I do. My whole life, my whole life is based on that. Bigots and morons and dummies. People say, how can you make fun of religion? Why not? What's to fear? God put us on this earth to laugh. God said to me last night, laugh, Jew. Anyway, gang, look at this. The dummy kid here went, did God say that to him? So this is um, Rickles wildly riffing. As long as we've just played this clip, clip, one thing that I said during the campaign a number of times is that I thought that Donald Trump owned this album. Uh, I mean, it went so far. As a young man, he owned this album. We can tell that Trump likes, and during the campaign, he, it seemed as though the only thing that he had absorbed from Don Rickles was 
you know, the, the way in which race could be used to make people uncomfortable and really in pain at times. Uh, but I also I noticed in Trump's cadences um, some of the cadences that Rickles has, he has a very unusual, uh, for, I, somebody who writes a lot of comic sketches, I hear beats, uh, his beats are really different from everybody else's. So let's play one more. Let's play a clip of Trump. Okay. I want to, I want to just remind you another of the trigger warning. Yeah. Another, another trigger warning. Okay. So I, I want to remind you what, what happened in that clip. He's setting up this kind of notion, you know, that he's going to say something very inclusive. So he says, you know, Jew, Gentile, black, brown, Puerto Rican. Puerto Rican, that's trouble. Um, all right, now listen to Trump do something very, very similar. Hillary wants to abolish, essentially abolish, the Second Amendment. By the way, and if she gets to pick, if she gets to pick her judges, nothing you can do, folks. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know. But. So the beat is kind of in the same place. You set up one set of expectations, and then you kind of break away in a different different way. The, when, I, when I heard him say that the first time, I thought, that's Don Rickles. He, that, that's a Don Rickles setup that he has just done. So, um, so Lucy, uh, there's so many things to say about this. But one of, the, one of the things we can say about comedy is that it is transgressive. It does work by uh, talking about things that we're uncomfortable talking about, and yeah. sometimes making us laugh at things we almost think we should know better than to laugh at. But but there are, there's there's another rule book here that that I think Rickles' material doesn't work by the standards of today. I I don't know. I mean I I I think the standards of today are still a little irreverent. I think what you're getting at, Colin, is that we have gone so far with political correctness that even comics feel like they're rubbing up a little bit against it. Is is that kind of where you're going? Well, you know, I mean, we know that Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld both said that, you know, that they and other comics don't want to play college campuses because they're going to run into too many rules. But I also feel like, you know, John Leguizamo, he can make a Puerto Rican joke. I'm not sure that some white Jewish comic can make a Puerto Rican joke today. You know, no matter how merrily he does it. No, no, absolutely. I I, I don't. Yeah, I I think we're probably past that point. I don't know if it's a bad thing that we're past that point. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, you know, challenging comics to look within themselves and then also within kind of their friend groups and their observations of other people for material is always going to be uh, this challenge that they should welcome if they've chosen you know, to go into that profession. But um, no, I, I mean, I, I think you're right. It's this question of is there, it, was he part of a, a bygone era of comedy? Right. And so, I mean, in that sense, he is part of the era where, for example, Frank Sinatra really did do some very important things in terms of employing black entertainers and refusing to stay in hotels that Sammy Davis couldn't stay in with him, even if it meant like moving his entire group to it someplace else. You know, there was sort of that. But then there were also these kinds of, you know, quote unquote, colored guy jokes that they would do with Sammy Davis Jr., which great against our sensibilities now. But so but but Benny, put on your psychotherapist hat for a second. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that comedy still does, though, it's always going to be scraping away with its fingernail at something that we haven't quite resolved in our own minds. I'm still reeling from the image of Trump as a Borscht Belt comedian. Yeah. No, it's Trump as a bo- so, as a kid with a record player listening to that record over and over. That's okay, the image I, I understand. Want you to have. There's yeah. some, you're, I think you're on to something, but it's so terrifying that you know. <laughs> but I, <laughs> um, I, I don't know about psychotherapy hat. I know that when things are um, shocking and right on, 
they can have an absolutely transformational effect. Like when things are named and it resonates properly with the audience and it's attuned, that might be a psychological word you could use, it's it's phenomenal. Mm. With um, with Don Rickles, you know, I grew up seeing him on Johnny Carson, and I had a very, in childhood, visceral reaction to him, which is not that dissimilar to what I've had to Trump, which is that, to me, Rickles was uh, unappealing, insulting, offensive, gross, and sort of like the id unleashed. But you know, as time's gone on, <laughs> and between last night and today, um, <laughs> and I listened to some of the, the Terry Gross interview, there was this one poignant moment where he says to her, um, so what's your last name? Talking to Terry Gross. And she says, Gross, and he goes, so you're a Jewish girl. Jewish girl, huh? And she goes, yeah. You know, just like that. Yeah. Like nobody talks that way anymore. And, and he says like, well, we can talk, you know. And it was like a longing I felt for the refreshing quality of like, oh, you're Jewish girl? Oh, yeah, yeah I see the hook nose. You know, and it's it's offensive. <laughs> but that that Jewish, there's also a Jewish style of humor. Right. At the end of that interview, by the way, she she asks him to make fun of her. Uh, and oh, she he, does? And he says, uh, he says, well, he goes, no, I mean, this took up a lot of time and I didn't care for you, but no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. We have to stop there. I, I will say this very quickly at the end. I mean, Rickles... He did what he did, I think, was to take all of our monsters out of the box, you know, and wave them around and then try to put them back in and sort of kiss everybody goodnight, you know, and say, all right, those were your monsters. They're not real monsters. I don't believe in these monsters either. Whether or not that stands up today is probably an individual decision. Uh, let's take a quick break so we'll have some time to make some recommendations when we get back. Right. I have no Kyle and Wolf to say the thank yous and the credits today, so I have to do it myself. The show is produced by Jonathan McNichol down here in the beautiful Audubon Street studios of WNPR. Um, and I would just take this opportunity to say I love all my producers. We're going out to lunch after this in New Haven. Uh, Jonathan McNichol, Josh Nalea, Betsy Kaplan. Betsy Kaplan, that's trouble. No, I, was try, I was trying to see if I could do a, see if I could do a Rickles. There she, she is. She a right Jewish there. girl? <laughs> Actually, no. Um, so... Um, Oh, it's time to do some recommendations here, so let's do some recommendations. Uh, Pedro, you want to go first? Sure. Um, so I've got uh, two art-based uh, things here in New Haven uh, for this weekend. Uh, the first one um, is at the Yale Art Gallery. I, every, it runs through uh, July, but the installation and the exhibit is uh, Lumia, uh, Thomas Wilfred, and the Art of Light. Um, it's amazing. And at any time, uh, if you're in downtown New Haven, go to the LR Gallery. It's free. If you have a weekend, you can go. Um, it, it, it's it's just something to see. It's from the 1930s, um, inter our, our installations through running through the 1950s, things that Thomas Wolford did and this sort of moving light. And uh, it's well, well worth it. Uh, and then on the, the local scene, um, actually um, down in Westville, I'm always trying to get people to get to downtown Westville, cool little place to go at the Killer Little Gallery. Um, there'll be a reception um, uh, about uh, the uh, an opening for Walls by uh, Liz Antle O'Donnell, uh, three to six p.m. and a QA um, by Liz and I think another artist uh, at five p.m. So, all right. 
Uh, Lucy Gilman, what have you got? Great. I've got two quick ones. The first one's an oldie but a goodie. Um, so I was reading Commonwealth by Anne Patchett, or, or Patchett uh, which is her new novel, and I loved it. And so I went back and read Belcanto, and um, it is so good. It is just so darn good. Um, it's, it is it is absolutely beautiful, kind of Mary Oliver saying the house of language. This is the house of language. Um, and, and then um, my other one is just uh, the artist, Mohammed Hafez. He's been on WNPR a couple times, um, but Pedro brought up Westville. His studio is at West River Art, so on the same block as that gallery. Actually, um, there was just a piece by Jake Halpern featuring Mohammed and his work in The New Yorker. So I recommend him as a person and certainly uh, his art and then also this great piece in The New Yorker. Mm. All right. You guys and your art. All right. <laughs> yeah. uh, two, two things. Uh, the two Dave Chappelle specials on Netflix. He's beefier. He's back. He's funnier. He talks about O.J., Bill Cosby. He's irreverent. I thought it was phenomenal. And then a book, um, psychological thriller called I'm Thinking of Ending Things, a very provocative title, debut novel from Ian Reid. And there's so little I can tell you about it because it's so scary and so weird and so brilliantly written. And it all just takes place basically in a, on a car ride, like one of those very intense things. It's an incredible page turner. And I just want to Give shout outs to him. I'm thinking of ending things by Ian Reed. Right, let me check that one out. All right. So uh, I'll quickly. Um, I don't, Peter, do you watch The Expanse? You'd be the only person in here to. I'm reading be. The Expanse okay. right so now. The Expanse so, is a show on sci fi. I'm not yeah. really so much endorsing that as um, Jared Harris. What an amazing actor. He was, of course, the very doomed Lane uh, on uh, Mad Men. Uh, and he's the son of Richard Harris. Um, yeah. Then he was uh, the very doomed father of Queen Elizabeth uh, in, uh, in whatever that series is called and he's he plays this kind of proletarian leader uh named dawes uh, on on sci-fi he has this kind of uh ali g accent that he does kind of west london and he's spectacular jared harris is such a terrific actor and then also do i have like 30 seconds do i have how much time do i have, do I have 40 seconds okay so i can quickly do this i always find listening to somebody really 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 smart take down something that I really liked a lot is fascinating. And it, I like being challenged that way. So Stephen Metcalf, uh, one of the two brilliant Stephen Metcalfs that I know, who uh, <laughs> does the Slate Culture Gab Fest, um, took apart uh, S-Town, which we were appraising to the skies last week on the news. And his takedown of it is so smart and so interesting as to kind of get me to rethink certain parts of my admiration for it. So uh, Slate Culture Gab Fest, it's uh, this week's episode. Uh, and wait until he does it. It's fascinating. Thanks to Jonathan McNichol. Thanks. Thank you, New Haven.